Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Matt Simmons with the American South Channel of the New Books Network. Uh, Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Ritterhouse about her book, Discovering the South, One Man's Travels Through Changing America in the 1930s. So first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today, uh, Dr. Ritterhouse. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let me just start by saying uh, I really enjoyed your book. Um, To do it justice, we would probably need a lot longer than we actually have. Uh, So today I'm just going to kind of hit a few of the highlights, um, some specific chapters, some themes that you covered throughout the book. Uh, But first, if you wouldn't mind giving us a sort of short uh, mini autobiography, maybe some of the key points in terms of your academic background and research, uh, I think listeners would appreciate that personal context from you. Sure. Well, um, I grew up in the Houston area, but really came by my interest in the South through my mother's family being from Northern Alabama and also feeling very Southern um, when I went off to college uh, at Harvard. Um, I got my BA there in 1992, focusing on history and literature, especially the um, 20th century. I've always been fascinated by the 1920s and 30s, as this book um, connects with. Uh, Then went straight from undergrad to grad school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, where I was, you know, in heaven working on um, on the South with lots of fabulous Southern historians and that long tradition of the study of this of the South, um, working most directly with Jacqueline Hall, um, and got my MA and BA or MA and PhD there, uh, finishing in 1999. Um, my dissertation turned into a book called "Growing Up Jim Crow," that was a look at how children, both black and white, growing up in the South during segregation, were socialized into the racial system, how they uh, came to think of themselves as black or white and what that also meant in terms of of day-to-day social performance. Uh, And so that book came out um, in 2006 uh, and also kind of led to my sort of initial germ of an idea for this one. Um, I went into what became Discovering the South with an interest in travel literature because of how illuminating travel narratives had seemed to be for growing up Jim Crow. You know, working on children, I was struggling to find, you know, rich discussions of children, um, especially that weren't retrospective, that were capturing, you know, what children were up to in the moment. And travel narratives were one place I could see that. And that led me to be really interested in travel and also in perspective, like trying to understand how the traveler's perspective, you know, shaped their narrative. And, um, you know, rather circuitously, that's what led me to Jonathan Daniels. I was reading, um, about Southern travel literature and, and a Southern, a Southerner discovers the South kept coming up. Daniels's own um, book about his travels in the South in 1937, a book that came out in 1938. And uh, that's kind of the um, primary, you know, backbone source for the study that I ended up writing um, called called discovering the South. Great, great. Um, so let's talk for a minute about Daniel's personal context. So thinking about chapter one, uh, we so-called modern. So it starts out in Raleigh, North Carolina, his hometown. Um, and as you point out, Daniels comes from a very influential Southern family. Um, his father, Josephus Daniels, secretary of war, I'm sorry, secretary of the Navy, um, the editor of the Raleigh News and Observer, which is a really important North Carolina newspaper. Um, and he even dedicates um, this book to his father, as you point out. 
um, as well. Um, so what does that relationship look like, this relationship between father and son? Yeah, a very crucial relationship. And he, he dedicates it to his father, Josephus, as, quote unquote, a better Southerner. And, you know, trying to figure out what that means is, is of course, really interesting because, you know, Josephus Daniels is, is really best known now, I think, for his role in the North Carolina white supremacy campaign of 1898 um, and for the, you know, just vicious, virulent racism um, of the 1890s uh, and and of the of disfranchisement, and so Jonathan, his son, you know, was a a, a very liberal Southerner for his day, uh, and the the tensions between the two are really evident. Um, I think in their relationship and even in that dedication, you know, what does it mean if, if Josephus is better um, as a Southerner than, than Jonathan? Um, they agreed on a lot of things. In fact, uh, Charles Eagles, who uh, has a, a full-length biography of Jonathan Daniels, argues that, that a lot of Jonathan's liberalism came from his father's sort of populist-leaning views, with the exception that Jonathan extended these ideas of small-D democracy to increasingly, over, over the course of his lifetime, extended them to include African Americans, whereas Josephus was, you know, a hardcore, um, you know, whites-only progressive um, of the late 19th century. So there's politically a lot of tension and and distance and, and, and growing distance and difference between them. And then, in, you know, personally, there's also a lot going on in that relationship. Um, Jonathan clearly lived in his father's shadow and, and craved his father's approval, even as he, you know, wanted to carve out his own identity. Um, it was kind of amazing. And some of the interviews that he did late in life, he still would stop himself before he would, you know, say things that were critical of his father. Um, and so it was just a, a very complicated relationship. Uh, another one of the, you know, you, you always have your favorite parts of the research, the things that you discover along the way, um, didn't know going in. And one for me was that Jonathan had written a novel, you know, prior to writing this book, A Southerner Discovers the South, he had written a novel in the late 20s called Clash of Angels that is, you know, just absolutely about his daddy issues. You know, it's about his um, irreverent 1920s sort of modernist leaning um, atheistic uh, take on religion in contrast to his father's, you know, teetotaling um, and, and very devout Christianity. Uh, and so just really fascinating to see Jonathan as a very young man in his 20s um, grappling with his father's influence. And, and of course, nice to have such written one of the great things about working on someone like uh, Jonathan Daniels is that because he comes from a well-connected, even famous, you know, family, you know, he thinks everything is important and worth saving. And so the the documentation that I could draw on for this project was just, you know, absolutely enormous. So, you know, it's not just me saying he has daddy issues. I have letters from his brother saying, you know, you're dealing with your daddy issues. Uh, and so while I sometimes had, you know, I, I wished very much throughout this project that I could bring in voices and perspectives from women, from African-Americans more, you know, more pervasively and did absolutely everything I could to do so throughout the book. It's also true that when you are grappling with the perspective of an elite, uh, you have a lot to work with to be, you know, really um, able to, to parse that out very, very thoroughly and carefully. And so that's certainly one of the things I try to do in the book. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and you're you're foreshadowing uh, some some later uh, questions I have as well. So that's excellent. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting that he was kind of in his father's shadow. He was even handpicked, right, to become his successor with the newspaper, even though there were three other brothers. Correct. Right. He from a very early age, um, Josephus referred to him as his partner. You know, just this assumption that Jonathan was going to be the one to take over the newspaper, and you know. Uh, uh, even though Jonathan wanted to be a novelist, he really, really wanted to be a novelist um, in his 20s. Uh, and his first novel did okay, um, not, but he, he just he could not get the second novel that he wanted to write. Um, again, another thing I learned along the way was this, this fascinating second novel that he tried to write and that it didn't come off. Um, even though he wanted to be a novelist, he always knew he was going to be the editor of the newspaper. And I think he was thrilled to get his chance uh, in the 30s when, after FDR was elected, he appointed Josephus Daniels to be ambassador to Mexico. Um, you know, as many listeners probably already know, um, FDR had worked for Josephus Daniels as undersecretary of the Navy uh, during the Wilson administration. And so this was a very close relationship uh, and, and a bit of a you know turning of the um, lines of authority in the 30s. But Josephus is off to Mexico and Jonathan gets his chance then to um, edit the newspaper and uh, immediately starts writing you know more liberal-minded editorials than his father would have written in the 1930s. And in doing so, also helps to carve out a persona for himself nationally as a, as a white liberal and an expert on the South, which ultimately leads him to be asked to write a book that becomes A Southerner Discovers the South, published in 1938. Excellent. Um, so kind of moving ahead past that, that context um, to chapter five, tenants are able to hold their heads a little higher. So this, um, you know, starting out in Memphis, um, staying in the uh, the Peabody Hotel, which I thought was really interesting with the ducks. Um, I've actually seen the ducks, although I didn't get to see them do their little march at the, <laughs> at the end of the day, but I, I have been there to the Peabody. But I really like the contrast between kind of this elegant Peabody Hotel with this fountain and kind of these tame ducks that people come to see and the dingy offices of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. So could you talk a little bit more about that, that contracts, that juxtaposition kind of between the Peabody, between the offices of the STFU and what the STFU was, what they were trying to do, why Daniels was interested in this particular organization? Sure. Yeah. One of the, again, very fun things about the book is that, that Jonathan was a, a very good observer and, and had that novelistic sensibility and loved to describe. And often, so I had not only his published, his published book, but also his journal that he kept during his travels with all his little comments, many of which were, you know, not very deep or sub- substantive, but all, but were just really rich for giving that feel of the times. And, and, you know, the ducks kind of come in at that point. So here's a guy who's out, you know, on his travels um, with a great deal of interest in understanding what was then called, you know, the tenant problem, the problem of, of sharecroppers and, and um, uh, tenant farmers being displaced from their land from the land because of the um, impact of New Deal policies that are, you know, paying landowners to take land out of cultivation, you know, the understanding of the agricultural crisis of the 30s being that, you know, there's a problem of overproduction that we need to, you know, reduce production so that the prices will rise and people will make more money on their crops. But of course, the problem with that is that landowners could, you know, quickly see that the land 
to take out of production from their point of view was the land that their tenants and sharecroppers were working, the land on which they were only getting partial returns as opposed to 100% of the, re- the returns. And so um, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, you know, sets off this crisis where the, uh, as, you know, as bad as sharecropping was, as bad as tenant farming was, um, not to not to have it at all, not to have any employment at all, and not to have any home at all was even worse. And so you see this massive displacement of sharecroppers and tenants. Um, I also treat a little bit in the book the struggles within government on how that law was going to be written and the fact that there certainly were uh, people in government who wanted to write it in a, in a way that would have been, you know, would not have put the entire burden of the um, the transformation of agriculture that that did need to happen, you know, on the poorest of the poor, on the sharecroppers, on the tenants. Uh, but that's the way it played out. You had this massive displacement. You also then had um, a movement organizing to try to do something about this. And again, the initial goal was to try to get the government to make the policies function more equitably. Uh, so the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, you know, organized with the, the sort of initial approach of trying to get the, get the ear of the federal government, you know, get a farm policy that is going to um, work better for the tenants and the sharecroppers and not only for the landowners. Um, with some, you know, some results, certainly on the national and, and sort of cultural level, you did start to see a uh, rewriting of people's understanding of, of what sharecroppers, you know, were facing and, and um, some overturning of the stereotypical ideas that had um, really become dominant with stuff like Erskine Caldwell's writings that basically uh, depicted sharecroppers in the South as just, you know, sort of shiftless, worthless people, Um, at least politically and to some extent culturally, you did see, you know, some movement on on that needle, uh, but ultimately, you know, not a great deal of improvement in the situation. And one of the things I I try to... um, trace out in the book is the, you know, the struggles of the union, both to be heard, to, you know, get better policies and to actually function um, as an interracial union in an environment that has, um, you know, just made organizing so incredibly difficult. I mean, there's not only tremendous violence, but there's just also, you know, decades of, of mistrust that have to be overcome um, because of the way that a divide and conquer strategy has you know, just always been used to keep the, um, the poor um, from organizing across race lines. So, you know, really trying to get into the, an explanation of the union that, you know, can encompass its history without um, getting too lost in the weeds of a very, very complicated, but ultimately very important story uh, because of the ways in which the Southern Tenant Farmers Union represents a kind of organizing across race lines, organizing around class um, issues that um, has often been seen as, you know, a, a preview of the civil rights movement, but I would argue really needs to be understood as, as, as kind of part of a first act of the civil rights movement that would, you know, develop um, over the next few decades. Right. Yeah. We, we definitely see the STFU caught up in a lot of different, uh, the, the fights between the socialists and the communists, like you pointed out, the kind of the friction between the different races within the union, um, you, you have, you know, scientific changes, technological changes. So really they're caught in the middle of all of these massive kind of fights and changed at the same time. Um, and in some ways it's almost amazing that they were able 
uh, to get off the ground, I think. Right, to achieve um, as much as they did achieve. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so when Daniels was in that area, kind of northeast Arkansas, that Memphis area, um, Mississippi Delta, touring the area and learning, you know, firsthand about sharecroppers, um, who did he engage with? Who did he meet? Um, and how did his own kind of, I guess, positionality, obviously not something he would have referenced himself because it's a modern term, but like who he was, you know, his gender and class and race, how did that kind of influence who he talked to and the way he perceived the situation? Right. Well, and certainly one of the things I was trying to do in the book is, as I mentioned before, I was very interested in questions of perspective, positionality is another good word for that, um, to get beyond just what Daniels knew and understood and even what he saw. So um, I try very carefully to distinguish between, you know, the actual conversations he had and then times when I'm sort of supplying more information. Um, But but I definitely do want to supply more information and bring in, you know, perspectives that maybe go beyond, you know, what he was even capable of seeing or understanding. And certainly one of those is gender. And so uh, one of the stories that I tell is an, about an, an event that, you know, he didn't witness, that he, he didn't even really meet anyone um, directly involved. But there in the summer of 1936, a year before he traveled, uh, there had been a, a very um, widely publicized incident where uh, a middle-class white woman named Willie Sue Blagden, who was a supporter of the union, and in fact, a little bit to the left of the um, main leaders of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union in that she leaned more communist, whereas they were non-communist or even anti-communist socialists. Um, She accompanied a minister out into the Delta in an investigation trying to understand what had happened to um, some union members in an episode of violent violent repression of the union. She accompanied this minister and the two of them got caught up by, you know, white um, anti-union guys who, who beat them um, and including her. And um, the, fact that they had attacked this this white woman um you know really caught attention at at the time and and got um covered in a newsreel and played in theaters and and you know became kind of this this moment of recognition of you know just how um how big a problem the violence was and of course we've seen this you know we see this over and over where um African-Americans, people of color, you know, get beaten and even killed and there's not a lot of attention. And then as soon as a white person and especially a white woman is on the scene and gets, you know, any, any measure of that kind of violence, then, you know, it's a huge cause. This is very much that kind of situation. Um, But, you know, Daniel's really did not have a lot of, of a gender, uh, you know, gender perspective. He was a man of the, you know, of his day of the thirties. And so I, I really wanted to try to use this story of Willie Sue Blagden to understand, you know, why this attack on a white woman was such a big deal and, you know, sort of what the sort of gender aspects of the story are, especially because it's a story that has not been told all that well, as far as I can tell in the scholarship, usually um, Blagden is, treated as, as kind of a hanger on who happened to be there at one particular moment and, you know, got sort of a mild beating, which is, you know, as someone who um, can't imagine 
you know, ever being hit, right? Like the idea of a mild beating is not, is something that I mentally put in scare scare quotes, but um, she's treated as, as, you know, sort of a, a almost comical story. And in fact, by getting into the research at a little bit greater depth, I came to realize that some of that treatment is because of both the the political differences, like I said, she was a, she was a bit left of, um, or more communist, you know, more communist leanings than the um, socialist leaders of the of the STFU, and then also because of the gender stuff. I mean, just missing her because she was female, and so this is you know really something that I was trying to add to the story beyond Daniel's own perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read some of that um, kind of correspondence in the STFU papers, and it's interesting that she's really portrayed as kind of this. Uh, debutante or dilettante kind of person just jumping around with not a lot of deep knowledge of what's happening. And at the same time, she's kind of held up very symbolically for the union as a rallying cry, um, even though, you know, they're calling her Willie Sue Flagden, I think was that's or the thing. Flogden, or, I think, Flogden, yeah. Like, that's it, calling her Willie Sue Flogden and kind of, you know, making fun of what happened to her. And to your point um, about her being, um, you know, hit, I mean, it left marks, didn't it? This was, this was the shocking thing that it shows up in this picture that circulates in national newspapers. Right. I mean, she was, she was badly bruised and, you know, so one thing, of course, I, again, really do try to point out in the book as well as, as a, a few minutes ago is that, um, there were many people who were beaten and killed. And in this particular episode, there's a a black woman whose story is completely untold, who, you know, I try to make sure gets the due um, in this telling of the story. But um, I don't really see why, you know, Willie Sue Blackton has to be, you know, treated dismissively um, either you know, from the point of view of the STFU leaders for, you know, for their political ends or from, you know, some kind of scale of hardship or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, um, I guess one of my pet peeves about the way we often write the history is that um, in trying to understand the complexities, it, it can be easy to lose sight of the real bad guys, right? The, in this case, I think the, the emphasis is, you know, needs to be on the use of violence to repress this union, violence that ranged from, you know, bruising Willie Sue Blagden to ultimately the death of um, other, including in this case, African-American union members, um, you know, in 1936 because of their organizing. And so, you know, really trying to uh, keep that awareness, that emphasis on um, how severe the repression was. And and one of the points I also try to make is how it, it almost seems like the backlash you know, gets organized faster than than the movements against the movements for change. Um, you know, the uh, the planter um, planter violence it came down hard and fast, very very quickly before the the union you know really could even get on its feet. Hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the big debates uh, within the STFU and among kind of shifting a little bit to, to kind of science and technology a little bit, agricultural policy um, in the 1930s was this question, right? Are we going to have family farms? Is this kind of viable going forward? I know you talked about this some in the chapter with the agrarians, the national agrarians, of course, are kind of throwback group of people who want to kind of bring back the glory days of the South, so to speak, um, or cooperative farming, right? Moving in this direction where you have a number of people working kind of on the same land, um, sharing equipment, 
um, you know, sharing the proceeds, you know, of any money that's made, you know, as part of this kind of broader business. And uh, we see that Daniel's visits a couple examples, right, of these different kind of contrasting views of agriculture and what it could be like in the South. So we have that Dias colony, this government funded collection of small family farms. We've got the Delta Cooperative Farm kind of based on this cooperative model. Um, what did Daniels think about these two contrasting visions of what agriculture in the South could potentially look like? And what did, how did this kind of fit into his vision of a modern South? Because it seems like he very much positions himself as kind of this modern liberal Southerner. So how does that kind of connect? Right. Yeah. Ultimately, he was disappointed in both um, for different reasons. I mean, the he I think he politically wanted to be favorable to the the government version, the resettlement administration, Dias colony, um, but found that it was just felt like it was too expensive. It was unsustainable. It was not something that um, could actually be replicated on um, a, a sufficiently massive scale to deal with the massive problem of displaced um tenants. Uh, he, he ends up referring to it as a toy town cut out of the jungle, says the, the government has been you know, playing house uh, and just does not see it as a viable option. And, you know, regrettably so. He, he feels like he may even get sort of drummed out of the liberal, you know, troops for this point of view. But this is, you know, this is how he sees it. He is somewhat more favorable to the Delta, Delta Cooperative Farm on one level in that he feels like the um, expectations are more appropriate to what could be done on a more massive scale. So for example, the housing, the quality of the housing is not as good, but is not as expensive. And so maybe could be, could be replicated. And of course that raises a lot of questions about, you know, what do sharecroppers deserve? Right. But, um, but at least something he feels like could be scaled up to be valuable, but he also has his reservations because of the fact that it is essentially being run on philanthropic money and that it is not an adequate demonstration of whether cooperative farming, you know, can be profitable because it is essentially only succeeding because of a constant influx of of, of philanthropic um, donations. He also has some concerns about the fact that it's uh, being run by people who aren't really farmers. And one of the real tensions you see throughout the story of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, both the, the cooperative at, at Delta and the union more generally, is the tensions um, over the people who have the on-the-ground knowledge, the, the rank and file versus the leadership who tend to, you know, not come from farming backgrounds, not, you know, so Delta Cooperative, for example, is kind of getting most of its farming knowledge, you know, sort of from the brother-in-law of one of the organizers who happens to be a professor in like Georgia or somewhere. I mean, it's just, it's really problematic to try to um, implement the cooperative plan um, with the resources that they have. I think, you know, as I was thinking about all of this, re- reflecting on all of this, I mean, I think a lot of the story remains unresolved. And I, I tend to, I, I try to sort of deliberately leave it that way in the chapter. Um, Daniels kind of turns to one of his 
all, all throughout the, his journey, he would find locals to kind of show him around. And so in this case, he turns to this this local Memphis um, AP reporter who has been helping him around and kind of turns to him and says, you know, boy, this isn't simple, is it? This is really complicated. And I, and it's like, yeah, that's exactly the situation. And I think that's that's really where it, it kind of remained historically as well, that, you know, this was a period of just a tremendous um, problem and and a, a sort of earth-shaking transformation that's going to take place in agriculture. Uh, and there are these experimental efforts to do something about it. But basically, uh, none of those experiments really has that much time to develop before the situation really changes again, especially with World War II and with the um, shift to you know, from a, a like from massive unemployment during the uh, Great Depression to this need for labor that ultimately pulls you know many of these displaced farmers you know into other kinds of work in other places typically, uh, and so it's kind of a story that you know never fully plays out uh, because the situation changes so fast. I did find it really interesting to be able to talk about some of the. Um, the ways that the Delta Cooperative uh, did have some sustained um, impact, you know, locally with mm-hmm. a um, further development that persisted, you know, into the 1950s and did provide some some real value to the local community. Um, Providence Farm, the Providence Farm, and you know the the uh, support for land ownership and and you know economic development um, locally. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, that idea of collective agriculture, that becomes really fraught too, doesn't it? Um, is, is kind of folks start grappling with, with communism on the rise, the party being, finding kind of inroads, particularly within the African-American community, thinking about the Scottsboro case. So did that even become a less tenable solution as we move further and further towards, you know, more red scares? Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good point. And, um, you know, the significance of the communist party the tussling over you know any suggestion of communism um, is something that I found really interesting as I was following Daniels around on his travels because you know he um, he was again very much a liberal but but fairly sympathetic to socialists particularly Norman Thomas and the, and the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, but very, very suspicious of communists. On the flip side, one of my favorite sources was actually a review of A Southerner Discovers the South by Rob Hall, you know, basically assessing Daniels, saying, you know, he's like from a communist perspective, he's, hmm. you know, he's this elite white guy, but his heart's kind of in the right place, you know, in the in the long run, Daniels seems like he he might end up on the right side um, mm. of, of these conflicts. So it was, I, I felt like Rob Hall actually had a better read on Daniel's, you know, sort of potential for open-mindedness than um, a lot of the you know, other reviewers of A Southerner Discovers the South who didn't necessarily um, understand the, the kind of flirting with the left that, that he was doing at various points throughout his book. Right. And that sounds like very much like something Daniels would say about people further to the left than he is, that, you know, their heart's in the right place, but they're just not not thinking quite right about this in the context of the South. Yeah, he says of Norman Thomas that uh, he and other socialists, you know, 
sometimes think with their hearts rather than their heads, but the alternative has been people who don't think with anything at all. <laughs> and so, you know, given those alternatives, he's pretty sympathetic, but as you know, his take on Delta cooperative and, and the Dias colony shows, he still doesn't think they've quite got it figured out or that, that they don't have it figured out. And, and I guess the point I would make is that it's just such a massive problem that that's hardly surprising. Right, right. So thinking a little bit more about uh, Mark Tree, so this very small um, rural southern town in the Arkansas Delta, and, you know, when he arrives there, uh, kind of his initial impressions of this town and how it's very different, you know, than Raleigh, Um, not only because, you know, you've got that big city, small city divide, but also because Arkansas develops a lot differently. And I think this is something that you bring to the fore in the book. Um, It develops differently than the rest of the South, particularly thinking about the eastern part of the South, states like North Carolina or Georgia or South Carolina, this idea of the facade of the South, kind of, you know, the white columned mansions that most people think, um, you know, kind of in popular imagination, kind of gone with the wind. Uh, But the Delta is very different um, compared to that. yeah, what did you kind of, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how thoroughly Daniels really understood that. I mean, I think he tried. He, you know, did quite a bit of reading. I think he did more research on the Southern Tenant Farmers Union and the problems of the Delta than any other topic. I mean, one thing that always chagrined me a bit as I worked on this project for a number of years is like how long it took me and how quickly Daniels did his side of it, right? He, mm. um, you know, he had a journalist's um, speed and an ability to, you know, really um, put something together without necessarily feeling like he had to understand, you know, or cross every T or dot every I. But, you know, I think he, he worked hard to understand the problems of the Delta, but I don't know that he um, fully got the, uh, you know, the, the nature of Arkansas development that had led to what he was seeing. I think instead he had a a real sensibility of how different it was that he tried to explain um, more descriptively. And so Mm. he gives some, some really good descriptions of Mark tree. I was also really pleased to find um, photographs that I could include that would give a bit of a feel for Mark tree. Um, Mm -hmm. One, well, I'll talk about Daniels and his photographs maybe a bit in a, bit more in a minute, but he contrasts the um, physical description of the place with the um, kind of a, 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 you know, maybe somewhat fabricated persona he creates around C.T. Carpenter, who was a, mm. an attorney for the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, but whose background was from Virginia, whose father had gone to, um, you know, Washington and Lee and, you know, who, who could just, you know, call upon this this sort of aristocratic Southern tradition that Daniels did very much understand. And so he sets up this, this sort of contrasting descriptions of the physical place and Carpenter and um, kind of ends his discussion of Mark Tree and of, of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union with this, you know, somewhat... Um, I guess somewhat optimistic or at least romantic um, notion of, you know, these um, noble people like Carpenter who, you know, are rising from their, their tradition to come and fight these battles with the, you know, with the tenants. Um, Again, I'm not sure how deep his knowledge of the, you know, actual situation of Arkansas development really was. 
but he does do a pretty good job of giving you a feel for you know what places like this looked like, even though he didn't necessarily get off the road all that much, um, as you know I, I might have liked, so that I would have had better opportunities to hear voices, you know, from um, from locals than turned out to be you know the case. Right, and it's kind of a whirlwind tour, right? So this is six weeks, six eight weeks, something like that. that yeah, he's, about six he's... weeks, um, and about like basically ten states. Mm-hmm. Um, the as I got deeper into the research, I came to understand that the way he tells the you know the journey uh, in the book is a little different from the way it actually took place. So he makes it seem like he started at Arlington House here in Northern Virginia, um, and kind of talks about uh, Robert E. Lee's mansion as being the facade of the South. Mm -hmm. Um, As it turned out, he didn't start. He started at home in Raleigh. Um, And so that's, you know, where I pick him up. But the, you know, one of the points he was really trying to make with that is that I, I really saw ultimately what he was trying to do in this book is to explain the South more fully in all its complexity and particularly write about a place that existed somewhere between the primary mythologies of the South this time, one of which was the White Columns, um, the Lost Cause, and the the um, sort of romantic plantation tradition that ultimately is going to be played out most and, you know, gone with the wind. And it was exciting the day that I realized he actually had interviewed Margaret Mitchell, um, mm, right. names in the book. Um so that's one picture. The other picture, again, is Erskine Caldwell and Tobacco Road and the degraded sharecroppers. He really wants to tell you about a South that's somewhere between those those two um, poles of falsehood, as he sees it. Yeah, interesting that he, he does focus on folks like Carpenter, right? The people who are similar to him in class and background, the folks who are supposed to kind of step up and solve the problems that he you know identifies in the South. But he does spend a little bit of time on his journey, um, talking to other kinds of people, although it seems like it's very rare. So in chapter seven, the most interesting man I met, you, you talk about his journey to Tuskegee. There's a particular individual who's only identified by his last name, Turner. It sounds like you found out who he was, Victor Caesar Turner. Um, so could you talk a little bit about Daniel's encounter with this kind of influential, very educated um, black man and his perspectives on Southern agriculture and race relations. Sure. Yeah. No, Daniel says uh, in the published book that he spoke, quote unquote, everywhere to Negroes. Uh, and I went into the project thinking that was going to be true. Uh, but in fact, that is really not true. And I think the the point that I came to understand is that he undoubtedly interacted virtually everywhere with African-Americans, but um, mm-hmm. in very shallow ways uh, with people who were, you know, forced into these kinds of subordinate roles, you know, carrying his luggage or serving him as his food or something, but not people he was, you know, conversing with. And that to actually engage with educated African-Americans would have taken some planning and some preparation in this incredibly segregated society that he lived in. And really the only place where he did that was in his plan to visit Tuskegee. Uh, So when he goes to Alabama, he does go to Tuskegee for not even a full day, I think just part of a day. Uh, And at Tuskegee, he encounters Victor Turner. Um, as you say, he inter- in- identifies him, you know, only as 
In fact, I don't think he's identified by name at all in the published right. book. And right. in the, the journal, he's identified it only as Turner. So it, it took some sleuthing to figure out that it must be uh, Victor Turner because he was the only Turner you know, on staff other than I think the, the university registrar. Um at Tuskegee during this time period. And then, you know, I dug into Turner's background and found that, you know, he was a, an educated man who uh, had specialized in, um, in agriculture. He was working as an extension agent, did a lot of work with youth. Um, and, you know, interestingly, kind of opens up to Daniels a little bit. I mean, it's not, it's not, as far as I can tell from the journal, a very extensive encounter. And I think what he said to Daniels was probably more enigmatic, um, but, but still disturbing to Daniels kind of gave him a sense that there's, you know, more going on here. Um, and that led Daniels to ask questions to some of the white informants that he later talked to in Alabama, um, enough that I was able to kind of piece it together and figure out that Turner seems to have been referring to this one particular family in Lowndes County, uh, who had a, a long history of, um, of racial violence and, and practice of, of peonage. Um, and so from there, and, and I do try to make it clear in the book that, you know, I am telling the, the, the Dixon family story because that seems to be who we're talking about here, but also because it's not that unusual a story, right? It, it, it certainly could have been um, them that Turner was talking about. And uh, it's a story that I'm able to tell because of um, two federal investigations for peonage that were uh, launched against this family, one in 1903 and one in 1946, uh, and as a family of five brothers, and um, at you know different points over these decades, you have clear indications that they are holding African American workers against their will, and uh, investigations don't actually go anywhere. But the fact that they're investigated at all is still um, a you know different from from the norm and uh, you know really striking to indicate that you know this was a particular um so on the one hand i'm saying they're not not that unusual maybe what i'm really trying to say is there's maybe a difference of degree not of kind uh and the most unusual thing of all really is that they got investigated and end up in the records and so that's a story that i that i try to flesh out um taking the little bit that Daniels gives me and using a lot of historical research around it in all sorts of sources, both the, you know, federal government documents, but also, you know, local history, census, land record type sources to, you know, really try to understand, you know, what is going on in Lowndes County. And the, and the allegations are pretty severe, right? It's not just necessarily peonage, holding someone against their will for kind of manufactured debts that supposedly they owe, but actual instances potentially of murder um, that we see them being accused of. Right. Yes. And um, that's the, the earlier case. The one I focus on more is the um, 1946 case where there's a man who's who's been held and... Um, who manages to get some support from white neighbors to, um, to you know, try to get um, a federal investigation going. And so it does produce some records, but it's clearly a family that has a long history of violence and the um, allegations of murder included murder of, of whites as well as African-Americans. So it's a, um, you know, pretty severe set of charges, but again, that ultimately don't, 
end up being prosecuted. Yeah, and, and, and there's some parallelism, I, I would say, between, you know, Willie Sue Blackton's case. You see this white woman being beaten, and all of a sudden people are concerned about this interracial union. Um, you know, you have whites being sucked into kind of this trap of peonage, and all of a sudden, you know, it's predominantly African-Americans who are, who are trapped in this. But, you know, when it's a white person, all of a sudden it kind of becomes, you know, national news and it kind of makes headlines. Right. Versus Daniels being afraid to even write about this in his book um, for fear that there will be repercussions and um, repercussions that might even include, you know, personal attack against himself, much less, you know, potential um, defamation or something like that. So he he writes, you know, only very, very obliquely and, and frankly, pretty offensively um, about this conversation with Turner in his book, writes a little bit more in the journal that allowed me to, to track things down. But one of the things I was trying to do in the chapter was to, you know, really um, make it clear, you know, where each piece of information was coming from, and especially the, the, the language, the tone that you're getting in the published book, you know, why Daniels is, is engaging in some of the more um, really insulting racial language that you see in the book and what he's, you know, the, the sort of, you know, covering himself he's trying to do as he does this. And the fact that he's very much writing to a, an audience he anticipates as being white Southerners. White, he's hoping, you know, a national audience, but he's, he's definitely assuming that his book is going to be read mostly and most closely and in, in, um, with, with most energy, you know, by a white Southern audience. Yeah. How much of that do you think is, is a conscious attempt to kind of say, hey, I'm one of you, you know, this is just how we talk, you know, about people who are, who are different than us, as opposed to kind of just ingrained patterns that he's just not even aware of, even though he kind of touts himself as this liberal kind of modern individual who is, you know, in favor for, for greater rights, at least at this point for, for African-Americans, not necessarily equality as we know it today, but he certainly sees himself as being, you know, one of the good guys really. And yet he's still using, as you point out, at least in his journals, this really offensive language, something we'd just be kind of shocked by today if we, if we read it. Yeah. And I, I think there's definitely some of that in the published version. I think he is very consciously trying to um, make himself an insider at the same time he's an outsider, as, as I um, point out pretty early in the book. I mean, very early in his book, literally page one, you know, he is trying to establish himself as, you know, both an expert, somebody who's been reading books and writing book reviews about the South for a decade, who's a newspaper editor, but also, you know, kind of a, an insider as I, as I kind of, you know, tongue in cheek point out his, you know, black mammy appears by page two. Mm. Um, you know, so he's, he's kind of announcing his credentials that way. And then also he tries to pass himself off to some extent as this sort of naive discoverer, you know, someone who's really never been to the deep South and who's, you know, asking these questions because, you know, he's from far away North Carolina and doesn't know how right. things work in Mississippi or Alabama. So he's really trying to navigate a bunch of different, you know, pos positionalities in relation to his audience. And I think the, the points at which he's making what in his day might've been the most controversial kinds of moves often are the times when it's also using the language that to us would be most controversial, right? So right. with Turner, he's trying to get the audience to, uh, to listen to this black informant. Um, but he does so by 
talking about his blackness in a way that's very much a you know a, a white southerner of his day talking about a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's just a really interesting game you know game he plays, and it also has a lot to do I think with his ideas about you know what hard hitting um, journalistic language should be. There's a few sources I found where he um, corresponds with Walter White, um, asking Walter White to you know vet his language in relation to um, African-Americans, you know, saying that, um, I, I can't remember exactly the, lay, the, I think it's, I think it's ghetto or slum that, you know, versus like Negro town, you know, kind of which, right. which, which wording can I use and does, you know, aren't people going to understand that I'm just trying to, you know, make it clear how bad the situation is and that this, this, this is a, you know, sympathetic use of a hard hitting term as opposed to a demeaning use of an ugly term. Um, so I think there is some of that, but I also think that Daniel's had more unconscious, um, racism and, and, you know, again, a man of his times than, you know, than he, he would have realized or, or wanted to own up to. And one of the places where I feel like I see that the most is times when in his journal, the unpublished source, you know, he's using language that is, is really gratuitous. And mm. um, there's a particular moment when he's driving through Georgia where he sees uh, some black women walking on the road where he just, you know, just egregious racial descriptions that don't even make it into the book. Right. And mm-hmm. so why he feels the need to, um, to use that kind of language, I, I really wonder. And, and, and again, I made some really conscious decisions in the book to try to counterbalance some of this stuff, not only to, you know, try to be careful in the way that I talk about these things, but for example, one of the photos I use uh, is of a, a black woman and child walking alongside the road who to me look incredibly dignified. And so I you know, tried to position that, you know, against Daniel's really like exasperating, um, ugly, racist language. Right, right. So that's a great segue into kind of one of the, one of the last questions that I have. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about his evolution as kind of a, a white liberal during this period of time and as a Southerner. So what is the starting point for Daniels and kind of where does he end up as we move out of the 1930s into the 1940s and the 1950s? And how does this compare, you know, to some of his peers who are also kind of along with him for this journey, but find themselves pulled maybe a little bit back towards conservatism as we get further um, moving closer to the, the civil rights movement as we think of it in the 50s and 60s, even though, as you point out, there's a much longer civil rights movement as well. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I did find um, encouraging as I worked on Daniels is that I do think he moves a lot further than um, his peers. You know, there's, I think, been an increasing awareness, especially since the publication of Ghost Out of Watchmen that, you know, really overturned Harper Lee's image of Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird, or really at least questions and, and made people have to, to rethink that, um, a realization of, of how many of the white liberals of the earlier generation, you know, 
really didn't move that far as the mm. civil rights movement took off in the 50s and the 60s, and many of them became, you know, pretty entrenched, pretty, pretty reactionary. Um, Daniels didn't do that. I think, you know, he... Um, he had the advantage of wider experience of the world, you know, working for the Roosevelt administration. I think his, his work in the forties that I talked about in the book's final chapter, you know, really helped him to see different perspectives working, you know, with um, African-American, you know, political figures, journalists. He had, at one point really helped to try to set himself up uh, in the wake of the Detroit race riot. He tried to set himself up as this, uh, informal advisor on race issues and and kind of keeping his finger on the pulse of, of racial tensions around the country to try to keep the lid on any further um, violence that might in, in embarrass the Roosevelt administration. Um, and I think that process led him to get connected with African-American journalists to a much greater extent and to really start to um, see beyond his own perspective to a greater extent. And uh, so, you know, he, he does end up in a more supportive um, place with the reservations. I mean, you know, he, um, he's, he never becomes a radical for sure, but uh, I think he, he is a, a, you know, really does become a, a true, um, I, I try to make a distinction in the book between those I call regional, regionalist liberals of the earlier period and true racial liberals of the civil rights era. And I think a lot of what I'm seeing with Daniels is that transition from the dominance of a, of a liberalism that is based on thinking about region and really focusing largely on economic issues, lumping together the problems of poor African-Americans and poor whites um, for good and for ill that lumping sometimes could be really problematic. Mm. Um, so shifting from that, that dominance of that regional liberalism to a racial liberalism that really sees the, the problems of African-Americans as distinctive and needing to be addressed, you know, in their own right, not, not as sort of a, a, a package, much less a, an afterthought of the regional liberalism of the earlier period. So, we're not too far away from this book being almost 100 years old. We're about 15 years shy or so, I believe. Um, so this this is an old book that, that you're covering, um, I guess, not for historians, but for just like general folks. It's a pretty old book. So why is Daniels in this book um, still relevant so long after it's been published? What can scholars and non-scholars alike take away from his journeys in the South, his encounters with these different people, and, and what he's choosing to write about in terms of what he sees? Yeah, in many ways, what I feel like I was trying to do in my book was to take the most valuable elements of a book that is frankly hard to read now um, and bring, you know, breathe new life into them. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm as, as good a um, descriptor as, you know, describer of, of people and places as Daniels was. So in some ways, I wish that we could just all read his book. But mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that it's it's not easy to do so. And I think one of the things that really led me to pursue this project is that I again, I was, I was most interested in travel literature and really was intending to, to write something that might look at multiple perspectives, multiple travelers, but I really got sucked into Daniels because he wrote this entire sweeping narrative all over the South, met all these, you know, really important figures, you know, 
connected to so many of the key stories of this time in this place, yet his book was very difficult even for me to read as someone mm. who at that point, you know, had been studying Southern history for about 20 years. Um, right. You know, it just was very hard to know what he was talking about all the time because he was writing to a contemporary audience that could be assumed to, you know, know the context at least well enough, right? Or to not care that much, right? Uh, because it was a, a journalistic um, documentary book. So maybe if you didn't know exactly what he meant by his 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 fleeting description of a say a political campaign, maybe that wasn't that important. But from my perspective as a historian, I found myself thinking, wait, what is the context here? What is he talking about? And so wanting to flesh out the context around all of these fascinating stories that he told. Um, I also was really drawn in because, I mean, how often is it possible in one book to talk about the wide ranging diversities of the South in the 1930s um, to, you know, literally get in the course of a six weeks journey, you know, all the way from the Scottsboro case and the Southern Tenant Farmers Union and this black informant at Tuskegee to Margaret Mitchell to Donald Davidson, you know, to these, these white um, reactionary figures who, you know, would not have necessarily wanted to be talking, you know, Mitchell particularly was known for not being willing to do interviews and Daniels actually kind of got in on the sly and never names her in his book because he knew he wasn't supposed to. And in fact, she was roaring mad that he even included one anecdote um, from his conversation with her without any attribution. I didn't know that it was Margaret Mitchell when I read the book, only when I got to the journal and was, you know, reading along at the Southern Historical Collection, reading the journal and, you know, a hundred pages into the journal, I suddenly learned that this woman, he, whose story, you know, his little anecdote he told in, in Atlanta, in the Atlanta chapter was Margaret Mitchell. Mm. Uh, and so again, very seductive to see this one trip that would allow me to, um, to touch on so many important issues in the South. I, I also fell in love with Daniel's map, um, which is on the cover of my book. The idea that, you know, you've got this, this map of the South of the region, but then this line around it that in many ways kind of ties up the region visually. And I think the, that, you know, his book also does that uh, through his incredibly wide ranging journey. But again, in a way that I think is really, really difficult for a 21st century reader to grasp. And so, you know, what I was trying to do was to provide that historical context and to, um, and also use the advantage of hindsight and research, you know, to go deeper than he necessarily could have gone, both because of his times and because of, you know, his limitations of his perspective and, um, and of the stories not having fully played out yet. So the last question I like to ask interviewees is the current project. So what are you working on currently? It's probably multiple projects, I'm guessing, but what's the one most present, I suppose, um, in your mind? Right. Well, it's taken me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. I came away from this book really interested in Lucy Randolph Mason, um, another figure from this time period who I you know, found very admirable and wanted to write about. And I've ended up writing a little bit about her and publishing an article. But at the same time, I became interested in a um, later 
woman um, of the South by the name of Betsy Brinson, who was, who, you know, who's, who's, who's very um, unfamiliar, uh, not been written about, but she, from 1977 to 1981 was working for the ACLU in a project called the Southern Women's Rights Project that was a regional offshoot of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's project for the ACLU, the Women's Rights Project. And I just found this to be a really fascinating organizing project that the ACLU undertook in the late 70s to advance feminism in the South. Um, So, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was pursuing a litigation strategy to try to achieve women's rights. Uh, a, a serendipitous bequest allowed for a Southern offshoot of this project to take place, but the feeling was that in the South, you needed to have an organizing effort before a litigation effort would really made sense. And so Betsy Brinson, who at the time was the uh, director of the ACLU of Virginia, was hired to be an organizer and work for those few years in the late 70s trying to um, increase the interest in feminism and particularly in feminist litigation uh, in the South. And the way she did it is really you know, it's really fascinating. It seems like she had a real understanding of the need for coalitions, a need for crossing race lines, a need for labor to be at the center of the story. And so I'm essentially writing a book that fleshes out her activities in the late 70s in the context of Southern feminism, um, connecting also with what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the the National ACLU Project was up to. Um, I also... Uh, point out the Southern origins of a lot of the feminism of the ACLU, which came through Polly Murray. And so this is turning out to be a really fun project because it's allowing me to learn more and write about Polly Murray, as well as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as this, you know, unknown, underappreciated work that uh, the ACLU was doing in the 70s um, and and Betsy Brinson. And Betsy herself is... um, alive and well. And so I've been able to interview her and I'm really eager to make her story more widely known. Um, and so that's, that's the next book and, uh, hopefully, you know, making some, some good progress on it. That sounds great. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Ritterhouse for talking with us today about your book, discovering the South, um, best of luck on your next project. It sounds really interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing that, that come out, you know, when everything gets tied to tied together. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it.